God did not spare his son. God's justice was not violated. The punishment was not mitigated. His mercies were not somehow manipulated. The law was not renegotiated and the severity was not depreciated. The son himself was not spared. He was given up for you. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Amen. As we come to the closing verses in Romans chapter 8, arguably one of the greatest chapters in Romans and in our, in our New Testaments, Uh, We look at now these last few verses and what a powerful section of scripture uh, these eight, nine verses are. And as we do this this morning, as we come to the end of Romans chapter eight, I want for a minute to think of the lengths that we go to, to give ourselves a sense of security. And I do that in quotes because no matter how secure you think you are, you add that extra lock on the door, well, Someone finds a way in through a window. So uh, what I mean is a sense of security. So we spend our time and our energy and even our money on building up what we think is a sense of security. So think about your house. Everyone here who rents or owns, you see the value and the priority of locking your doors, locking your windows. But some of us, if we don't feel secure, we add to that. We add an extra lock. We add a fence. We add a dog. We add a gun. We add a safe for our gun. We add special insurance for our safe and our gun. We add extra safes for all the other expensive things that we have. And we get insurance for that. We even get security systems like Ring where, I'm not on their payroll by the way, and this isn't a promotion for them, but go to ring.com and order today. If you were to go and purchase that, now you've got motion detection, uh, cameras on your front door just to protect that Amazon package of toothpaste from getting stolen. You want to be safe and secure. And, and security is actually big business, not just personal security, but cybersecurity. I, I was blown away to read this week that Microsoft boasted last year that from now on every year, Microsoft, just one company, will be spending a billion dollars with a B every year on cybersecurity. This is big business. It's big business corporately with organizations. It's big business personally. And yet, you and I, when we think about this idea of security, we have in our minds maybe personal, maybe, yes, economic, physical, cyber, but none of these compares to eternal spiritual security. We live in the midst of a fallen, accursed cosmos that stands in opposition to a holy, benevolent creator. And that means in your natural state today, you are not secure. In your natural state, you are separated from the love of God. And so today in our study, we're going to look at these verses in Romans chapter 8. And we're going to actually see that because of the love of Christ, you and I have nothing that will wedge in between that. You and I are not separated. If we're in Christ, we are actually secure. And that is something that we can rejoice in today. We're going to see today in our text uh, six important questions. Paul ends this with six big questions, 
And then he adds six idle threats. And these threats, again, are idle. They do not pose a threat to the love of God in Christ. So what we're going to see is that, listen, in light of God's sovereign grace, not your good works and your ability to hold on to his love. No, based on his sovereign grace in the believer's life, you and I have an advocate, a defender, an intercessor, and an inseparable love that nothing in all of creation, yes, even that, nothing will ever threaten his love. We're going to learn today we are not separated if we're in Christ. We are secure. So uh, just to recap for a moment, we're in Romans 8. Maybe this is your first Sunday or a few. You haven't been here in our study of Romans. Paul has written what many argue is a missionary fundraising letter to the church that met in the cosmopolitan Italian city, capital city of Rome, of course, the headquarters of the Roman Empire. And he's writing to this church to raise money for supporting gospel ministry where he goes to places where Christ has never yet been named. And there's a few places left on the map today where that's still the case. That's why here at Shoreline, we we're constantly wanting to see uh, the gospel go to unreached people groups to the ends of the earth where Christ has not yet been named. So Paul is saying, hey, I would love for your partnership in this. And here's what the gospel is that I'm going to preach. And then starting in Romans chapter one, he begins to kind of unload the gospel. And from Romans one to five, Beginning of one to the end of five, we have this gospel message. So notice on the screen, if you can see it, we try to provide these slides on our website every week. I know some of you pulled the camera out and that's fine, but we also provide these on our website. But notice that this gospel includes verses uh, 116, God's power in our salvation. This gospel is God's inclusion of all ethnicities without discrimination. There's no people group, no nationality, ethnicity outside of the reach of the gospel. Not only that, but it includes God's righteousness, which comes not by works, but by faith, 117. We see something not preached often enough, God's wrath against ungodliness and unrighteousness. We see God's general revelation that he has revealed himself in creation, but he's also revealed himself more specifically in special revelation through his son. We also see God's judgment on all, whether you're under the law or you didn't even know there was an Old Testament uh, in chapter 2. And then we see God's redemptive, justifying work through Christ. This is the gospel. We see in chapters four, God's promise. And in chapter five, we see that God's peace, grace, glory, and love are given to those by the spirit, to those who are in Christ. So at the end of the sweeping description of the gospel, and remember that little side argument that Paul had with the, Rome, uh, the uh, Jewish arguer? At the end of this, Paul asks in Romans 6, 1, what shall we say then? Or, or in other words, what could we possibly add to this? There's nothing more to say. And then in chapter 7, he does it again. He asks the same question in chapter 7, verse 7, where he says, hey, where's the place of the law in the believer's life? And he asks it again, what shall we say then in response to these things? So then here again in chapter 8, at the end of the chapter, which has been a contrast between the unbelieving a person who's still bound in their flesh on one side with the Christian who is now walking in the spirit, we realize we're not condemned any longer, but we're now beloved. We're beloved. In fact, many pastors used to begin their sermons with dearly beloved, dearly beloved. They would address the congregation as the ones who are held in the love of God. You're in the beloved. We're no longer condemned. We're beloved. Now at the end of this chapter, Paul stands back in wonder at the grace and love of God 
And he asks the same question again. Did you see it in verse 31? The first of six questions, he says, what shall we say to these things? In other words, can we say anything else? Is there anything more that we can say to what things? He says, to these things. Well, to the things that we've been learning. The fact that God has justified us, called us, glorified us. The fact that when we go through trials, these are going to be outweighed by a future glory. What can we say to the love of God? Well, he goes on to ask the second question. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31, Romans 8.31, was known by many as John Calvin's favorite verse. And within this verse, there are two questions. The first one, again, we just said, what shall we say to these things? Paul is almost saying, like, there's nothing more to say. Now, we know this when we hear preachers, when preachers say, there's nothing more to say, or in conclusion. And we know what happens next, right? You've sat through enough sermons. You're like, if we say, oh, it's time to conclude. You're like, yeah, he's going to talk for 20 more minutes, <laughs> right? And that's what happens here. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Actually, let's ask five more questions about these things. Uh, And so the second question here is in the second half of the verse, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the obvious answer to that question, church? No one. Now, I'm so thankful this is not an actual if, as if he were saying God truly is against us, right? Uh, Or, yeah, God, maybe he will be for us. No, this, this is a foregone conclusion. You would read it better to read it this way. Because God is for us, Who or what could possibly stand a chance against us? But listen, for a minute, the inverse is also true, isn't it? If God is against us, then who can be for us? And the same answer, you were very confident a moment ago, but the same answer is true. If God is against us, no one can be for us. John Stott said perhaps those are the worst words, the most terrible words any human ears could ever hear. The words that God uttered throughout the Old Testament when he said, I'm against you. He said that to Assyria, to Babylon, to Egypt, to Edom, and many others. Some people today erroneously believe, well, God is for me. The terrorist who walks into a country to take people for his kingdom would say, God is for me. The unbelieving, unrepentant man who openly mocks God with his lawless rebellion, but then presumes underneath it all, I'm still a good person, so if there is a God, well, then he's for me. The unmarried couple that says, let's have sex outside of marriage because, hey, God is for us. Well, this is not the case. If God is for us, Paul says, if he's for us, then no one, nothing can be against us. But the truth this morning is that there are many things against us, isn't there? Or aren't there? There's many things. Down in verse 35, we have a list, plenty of things, lots of hardships that are actually against us. You and I have, outside of these four walls, a hostile, unbelieving world that persecutes and patronizes us. You and I have the flesh. We have indwelling sin, which constantly threatens to oppose us. We have the devil and the rulers and powers of darkness mentioned in verse 38. Those are certainly our adversaries. One commentator said, sometimes under calamity, the whole universe seems to be against us. We as Christians know what that's like. We know what it's like to stand up against the world and say, wow, the whole world is not just a feeling. Like the whole world is against me. But listen to Paul's train of thought. If the holy, just, all-powerful creator who has foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified us is for us, is for you, 
then none, no threat will prevail against us because God is on our side. This is a truth we need to meditate on and we need to let resonate with our hearts because our hearts betray us. Uh, I was reading this week, someone challenged, uh, one of the commentaries challenged us and I decided to accept the challenge to take a Sharpie and a sticky note and write these words, God is for, and then write your name. So I did that, God is for, and I wrote my name, Romans 8.31. And I put it on my office wall and every time I walk in and out of the office this week, I'm reminded God is for me. And there's just something that we wanna add to that, a little asterisk, well, God is for me, but, but we need to rest today in the truth that God is for us. William Newell talked about this. He said, our weak hearts prone to legalism, prone to unbelief, receive these words with great difficulty. God is for us. They have failed him, he is for them. They are ignorant, he is for them. They have not yet brought forth much fruit, but he is for them. Believer, rest in the truth today that God is for you. It's, it's almost like we agree and we can handle God is with us. Yep, God is with me. But it's hard to jump over the fence and land with that peace in our hearts that God is for me. And so rest in that truth today. Knowing that God is for you produces incredible confidence in the life of the believer. God is for us. Who can be against us? No one. Amazing truth. Well, look at Paul's third question, verse 32. He says, he, this is the father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question number three, how will God not give us all things? Well, I want us in verse 32 to hear the language of Genesis 22. Do you hear it? Genesis 22, by the way, is when Abraham was told by God to offer his own son, the promised son, Isaac, on Mount Moriah as a sacrifice, as an offering to God. Imagine that, that you're to take your son, the son that I promised you, and you're to go ahead and sacrifice him. Now, thankfully, uh, the scriptures give us a little detail. Hebrews tells us, that Abraham, Abraham actually believed that God would raise his son back from the dead. So he obeys. He binds Isaac. He picks up the knife to, to slaughter his son and offer his son and blood on the sacrifice, uh, the, the offering mount, and the angel stops him. And in Genesis 22, it says, the angel says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. That's the language. It's actually in the Septuagint, the same exact word, withheld. You've not withheld. You've not spared your son, Abraham. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 8 is the father has not withheld his son. The father has given his son for all believers. By the way, that's the us all, right? He gave his son. He did not withhold his son. He did not spare him. He gave him for us all. That's for believers, and this idea of giving is the same verb used in the Gospels when it says that Judas and the Jews and Pilate handed over Jesus to death. They handed Jesus over. They gave him over. One person said Judas did it for the money. The Jews did it for envy. Pilate did it for fear. But the father did it for love. The father gave his son. He didn't withhold him. He didn't spare him. He gave him up out of love. Just think about that for a minute. Remember, Jesus in the garden said, if there be any other way, but let your will be done. And then we know he didn't just, there wasn't another way. 
he went to the cross. The sentence, think about this, the sentence of death and separation and condemnation that you deserve, that I deserve, was pronounced upon God's own dear son. God did not spare his son. God's justice was not violated. The punishment was not mitigated. His mercies were not somehow manipulated. The law was not renegotiated and the severity was not depreciated. The son himself was not spared. He was given up for you. God is not only for us, but the son was given up for us. The son, Jesus, was not spared the wrath of God. And the truth is that you and I have been because of the finished work of Christ. By faith, you and I are spared from the judgment. The one hymn says, O Christ, what burdens bowed thy head? Our load was laid on thee. You stoodest in the sinner's stead. You didst bear all ill for me. A victim led, thy blood was shed. Now there's no load for me. Death and the curse were in our cup. O Christ, t'was full for thee. But you hast drained the last dark drop. Tis empty now for me. That bitter cup, love drank it up. Now blessings drop for me. I mean, notice Paul's line of reasoning here in this question. His line of reasoning here in verse 32 is, if God didn't hold back the greatest gift he has ever thought to bestow on his creatures, his own dear son, well, why, how silly would that be that he would withhold anything less than the greatest gift? Why would he withhold any lesser gift? I mean, that makes as much sense as a billionaire paying for his family, just picture this, paying for his family to take a cruise around the world. Hey, kids, we're taking a cruise around the world. I'm paying for it. So then they get on the cruise and he goes up to his six-year-old and says, okay, hey, it's day one. Do you, did you bring any money? I want to make sure, Junior, that you have money for some food, right? That wouldn't make any sense. He's already paid the way. And so God is capable of giving the greatest gifts and he can be trusted to bestow even the smallest, most inconsequential blessings upon his children. I think John Piper, this is one of his favorite verses as he comes to this and goes, man, if God didn't give his own, if he didn't hold back his own son, why would we think he'd hold anything else back? Spurgeon said it this way, what, will he deny you bread for your body after he's given you Christ, the bread of heaven for your soul? Will he deny you clothes for your body after he's clothed your soul with the robe of Christ's perfect righteousness? Will he deny you a sufficient store of earthly goods that you may get through this world when he's already given you a mansion in the skies and an unfading crown of life. You see, because of the work of Christ, God graciously forgives, but he also graciously gives. That's hard for us, isn't it? Like, oh, I get that I've received justification by faith, but then that I would receive blessings. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. That's hard for me to say. I'd rather sing about what Christ has done for me but the fact that he would also continue to bless me today, it's hard for us to fathom, but it's true. Well, look at verse 33. Look at the fourth question. In light of this, look at what he says. Okay, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the fourth question is, hey, who will bring a charge against God's people? We know that God is the one who has already allowed his son to take our place. So then who's going to bring any charge? Uh, very reminiscent here of Isaiah 50. You guys want to jot these verses down. Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah says, Who then will bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me, 
who will condemn me? Now, this is obviously rhetorical. The obvious answer is what you just said a moment ago. No one, no one can stand against us. No one can bring a charge. No one can accuse. But we actually do know the answer to this, don't we? We know from the scriptures that the name Satan actually means accuser. And so this is courtroom language. I want you to picture a courtroom and an accuser comes with a long, detailed, damnable series of charges against you and I. And so then we go, well, let me appeal to the law. Well, the law steps forward, not on your behalf, but it actually stands as a testimony against you. The law corroborates, yeah, you are guilty. And then our own conscience brings a charge against us and condemns us and says, yeah, you're definitely guilty. You know it. But see, what Paul is saying is, hey, let the accuser stand up. Let the law be brought. Let your conscience come and try to condemn you and bring these charges. He says, bring them. Why? Because God's the justifier. And if the just justifier declares you legally, forensically not guilty and in right standing with himself, then no one can bring any charge. It's going to almost seem embarrassing to bring any charge. God says that's already dealt with. That's already forgiven. That's already been paid for. Within that courtroom, the accuser in one corner, but over here we also have another, and that's our advocate. And an advocate is one who comes and stands in the place of another. Some of you are involved with uh, different advocacies within our, our community and you stand like guardian ad litem, standing for children, standing for foster uh, or adoptive children. And as an advocate, you say, I want to come in and stand in the gap here. I stand in the place and help. I want to assist. I want to lend a hand. And you and I don't have to stand up and be our own advocates. We stand guilty and condemned as sinners. And we don't have to try to seek to plead our case before the Father. No, John tells us in John, 1 John 2.1, if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that he points out the righteous. And of course, you got to love the ifs in 1 John. Uh, if anyone does sin, anyone here? Does that equate you? Yep. Okay, that's me. If anyone does sin, oh, okay, I have an advocate, and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. I'm clothed in his righteousness, and he is my advocate. And so, wow, who is it to bring a charge? No one. Notice what he says, though. He says, bring any charge against God's elect. I want you to circle that word, elect. Uh, this is a word that triggers some people, like the word foreknown and predestined that we looked at last week. Please don't be triggered by Bible. Okay, this, this is in the Bible. Uh, and so the word here has two words, ek, which means out, and lego, to call. So literally, the elect are the called out ones. Okay, it actually... We get our New Testament word church based on the root word. So the, the New Testament word for church is ecclesia. You guys heard that word before, ecclesia. It's from that root word, eklego. So the idea is that we as a church are the called out ones, called out of darkness into an assembly. We are called into an assembly of the elect. Uh, and so I want you to focus less on the condition of the person and more on the quality of the call when you think about elect. Okay, election is a word that's used sometimes of Israel, but essentially refers to God's eternal choice of persons to eternal life. We mentioned it last week, not because that they were so awesome and he had some foreseen merit in them, but because of his loving mercy in Christ. And that leads them to be called justified, glorified. 
A verse for you to look up is Acts 13, 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so we can, we can rest in this truth uh, that no one can bring a charge against God's people, against God's elect. God the justifier is defending them. Now notice the fifth question here in verse 34. The fifth question is, well, who is to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, what he's doing here is he's saying, okay, it's one thing to bring a charge, but the charges may be empty, but it's another to condemn. Who actually has the power to condemn you to hell? Who has that power? He says, Christ Jesus. Why? Because Christ is the one who died and who was raised and who has ascended and who is now seated at the right hand of God. But notice what Paul doesn't emphasize. He doesn't emphasize what the Apostles' Creed does. You guys remember the series we did, the Apostles' Creed? It came uh, many years after Paul wrote this, but one of the summaries of the early church, we did a series back at the beginning of the year on the Apostles' Creed. And uh, all Christians would affirm the creed that we call the Apostles' Creed. So um, summary of what we believe, remember we did this? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In the, in the creed, it says, from there, from thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's what the Apostles' Creed emphasizes, that, hey, from heaven at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is going to come to judge. But notice Paul doesn't do that here. Paul doesn't emphasize that Jesus sits in judgment, though he is at the Father's right hand. This is kingly language, right? But notice... He doesn't emphasize Christ coming as judge. John 3, 17, Jesus says, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. It's already condemned. He came into the world to save it. So notice what Paul emphasizes. He says that next to the Father, he says, seated at the right hand of God, Jesus is interceding for us. It's one thing to be an advocate. It's quite another to be an intercessor. You see, Jesus isn't sitting on that seat of judgment as interrogator, but as intercessor, one who not only advocates for you, but then steps in and goes in between to act in a way that brings reconciliation and resolve. We would say, I'm interceding for my brothers and sisters in Christ in Haiti and in Afghanistan. We would say, I'm praying for them. I'm lifting them up. I'm calling on God the Father for them. That's what it means to intercede. In Hebrews 7, 25 says, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is not only your advocate, he's also praying for you. We learned this last week, that the Spirit of God intercedes for us at such a deep level, words aren't even needed. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you. And here we learn the Son of God at the Father's right hand is praying. He's interceding for his church. Dane Ortland in the book we're, we're giving out this month, Gentle and Lowly, by the way, they're back in the resource center. Please take a copy. It's yours, free. And if you already have a copy, take another copy and give it away, all right? Um, but here's what Dan Orland says. He says, intercession is something Christ is always doing, while advocacy is something he does as occasion calls for it. Apparently, he intercedes for us given our general sinfulness, but he advocates for us in the case of specific sins. But his advocacy on our behalf rises higher than our sins, his advocacy speaks louder than our failures. All is taken care of. 
Let your own unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous, in all his brightness and sufficiency. You see, Jesus Christ has the sole place to condemn. But note what he does with his people. Even though he has the right to condemn us, what is his posture? His posture is prayer. He's pleading our case before the Father. And it's not based on our merit. It's based on the finished work that he accomplished for us at Calvary. He's pleading the merits of his own blood. He's saying, Father, this one is in us and my blood can be applied to this sin. And so he intercedes, he advocates for us. Who can condemn us? If Christ alone can condemn, then no one. Well, then we come to the sixth question, verse 35. Uh, Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, Paul here actually lists seven candidates. Who? And he begins to list them. But then he quotes Psalm 44. And Psalm 44, you go back and read it later, that actually describes Israel's suffering, not because they turned away from Yahweh, but actually because she was being loyal to Yahweh. In other words, hey, we're like sheep being slaughtered and we're doing this as we serve you. And so the question is, is there anyone or anything, even suffering, that can drive a wedge between the justified and Christ's love? Is there anything that we can come up with? What shall or who shall separate us? And then he asks them, here they are, here's the seven. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And then he quotes Psalm 44, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice that list with me. Each one of these is an adverse circumstance that is greatly effective at causing separation in some area of human life. Like, look at it again with me. You have tribulation and distress. One is external. One is internal. We suffer tribulation on the outside, and that separates us from safety. We suffer distress in our hearts, and that separates us from rest. Many of you know what that's like. You've maybe not suffered tribulation, but you've definitely suffered distress, anxiety, keeping you up at night, no rest. Well, then there's persecution. Persecution, uh, clearly the early church understood this, but persecution separates you from the world, separates you from friendships, from the world. Famine, nakedness, they clearly separate you from creature comforts like food or clothing. Then you have the word danger here. Danger, the word is peril. And Paul uses this eight times in 2 Corinthians to describe his ministry. You want to know what my ministry has been like? Peril. I'm in danger from everyone. I can't even go on the road. I'm in danger on the road. Try to go home, I'm in danger. And so the idea of being in danger is separated from peace. In fact, Paul had experienced all of these when he wrote this to the Romans, except for that last one, sword, to be separated from your life as you're put to death for your faith. But we know the rest of the, of the story in church history, don't we? Uh, Paul's writing to the church in Rome and the government, the imperial government, the Roman Empire that oversaw the government with, within which this city, this church met within the city, that government would eventually put Paul to the sword. And Paul could add verse 37, not from theory, but from experience, where he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all these things, and all the things that he just listed. Now, I've always wondered, what does he mean by more than conqueror? What does that even mean? Like, we know what it means to be a conqueror, to defeat an enemy. But what is more than conqueror? Actually, the Greek is super conqueror. 
I like that. We should have a Marvel series called Super Conquerors, except don't do a Christian version of it because it'll be cheesy, right? So uh, listen, here's, here's what this means. A conqueror defeats an enemy. Being more than a conqueror means to take your enemies and to make them your helper. So what we perceive as coming against us is actually used by God to assist us. So let's think about like a real basic human uh, bit of suffering, uh, like cancer. So if you've suffered and recovered and beaten cancer, you're not just a person who has conquered cancer. To be a super conqueror, more than a conqueror, means I'm so thankful that God allowed that suffering and that cancer in my life because through it, the enemy became the helper. It helped me to draw near to God. I was able to use the testimony of God's faithfulness through this suffering to help others. Maybe you're, maybe you're a widow. Maybe you're a wife who's married to an unbeliever. And you're able to be a conqueror by saying, I'm going to trust God through the midst of this. Now, your husband is not your enemy. But your husband, who's an unbeliever, can actually be your helper where you say, I need to lean in even more so to the Lord. And think about it for a minute. In this list, tribulation, distress, they actually cause us to be more than conquerors as we cry out to God in prayer. Persecution, it causes us to be a more than conqueror as we glory in being worthy of suffering on behalf of his name. When we lack food or clothing, that makes us to be more than a conqueror as we rely more fully on God as our provider. When we have danger or the threat of death, we can say, I'm more than a conqueror because this moves me away from complacency and ease and towards conviction as I take my life serious and I don't meander with luxury. Listen, don't be deceived, don't be dismayed. None of these things, even the sword, can separate us from the love of Christ. In fact, what they actually do is they cause us to be victorious in his love. They allow us to take these seeming enemies and make them our helpers. So to demonstrate the love of Christ, Paul now lists six idle threats to our eternal security. Again, these are idle. He's just shown us the work of Christ in these first verses. But now in verses 38 and 39, he communicates the love of Christ. So he shared the objective truth of the cross. Now he communicates the subjective inclination of the father and son toward his people. Notice with me, six idle threats. Verse 38 and 39, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah, Chris, leave those up for a minute. We're going to walk through these for a minute. Each of these summarize a totality, all of the spectrum of life and death, all of the spectrum of created beings, all of time, space, and any power, the entire spectrum. Now, death, death and life. Death isn't obvious. Yeah, death could separate me from Christ's love, but how could life? Well, in the sense that the temptations and the traps of life, as you go live a life apart from Christ, even those temptations and those traps and those troubles will not separate you from the love of Christ, and nor will the darkness or despair of death. Well, angels, how do angels how would they pose a threat? Well, angels in the scriptures, we learn, are often so glorious and frightening that people revered them and feared them. And so he's saying an angel won't get in the way of the love of Christ, nor will a demon, a fallen angel, tempt you far enough away from Christ that his love doesn't still hold you. 
things present nor things to come. Anybody been stressed out lately at the present circumstances in the world? Well, he's saying, hey, the current crisis in the world or whatever's coming down the pike, it may seem to invoke terror in our hearts, but that won't cut you off from the love of Christ. Isn't that a comfort? Like none of our temptations, trials, or troubles will pose a credible threat to Christ's love for us. Well, not only that, but he says powers. So no power, no human tyrant, no supernatural adversary can overcome the greater power, the power of Christ's love. And then he says no height. And he may have been referring to the, the, uh, the star in its zenith uh, or no depth, which may refer to the depths of the earth. Neither of these can outmeasure higher or deeper than the love that Christ has for his own. And in case that, those things weren't enough, Paul opens the junk drawer that we all have in our homes. And he says, is there anything else in there? And there's something you're thinking of. Well, there's that one thing that I've done or that one, that one, no. He says, no, nothing in all, anything else in all of creation. He says, none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. Does that make you feel secure today? Well, it doesn't matter how you feel. You are secure. See, for those, though, who are not in Christ, the inverse is also true. So if you're not in Christ today, there is absolutely nothing which will join you to his love. Life won't join you to his love, and death certainly won't. You can call on every angel or demon that exists, but they will fall short. Your present works, your future charity, those are an offense, not a treasury. You can't produce salvation or favor from God in your own power, and there's no deed high enough or heart desire deep enough to join you to the love of Christ if you will not repent of your sin and trust Christ and rest in his love and not your own works. You see, for those who are not in Christ, nothing can join you to his love. And for those who are in Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. And Paul says, I am sure. Another translation, I am confident. I am certain. In a word, you could say, I'm secure. So believer, rest today in the truth that God is for you, God is with you, that you are loved and nothing and all of creation can separate you from his love. Now our application is very simple today. Three truths, three responses. We're gonna not spend a lot of time on these, but number one, in light of having an advocate and defender, fear not. God is the justifying judge. Jesus is our advocate. So fear not. Don't walk in despair anymore. We have an advocate and defender. Number two, we have an intercessor. He's pleading our case before the Father. Not only is he our advocate, we also have him as our intercessor. He's praying, so fret not. As you endure hardship, you know that you're, you've got not only the Spirit, but the Son interceding for you. And finally, number three, you and I, we have an inseparable love, so faint not. In the midst of a world of terrors, what else can give you true security? I mean, honestly, is it, is it the, the little lock on your door? Got the, oh, it's okay, I'm good. I've got, I can slide the chain and we're good, we're safe. No, what is the greatest hope that we have, the true security, if not knowing Christ's love will never expire like the bad milk in our fridge. It'll never falter like the spouse that let you down. It'll never fail us like some of our children may have failed us. You see, we have human ways to identify love. We have the love of a husband and his wife. 
We have the love of a dad with his kids. And I remember my kids both being born and looking at them saying, there's, I don't think I can love ever any greater than this. When I look at this child, I, there's so much love. And the love that you have for your spouse, the love that your parents had for you, the love that you have for your children, you know what? It pales in comparison to the love of Christ. It's something that we'll never be separated from. So rest in that today. Stand with me together. We're going to close in song. And we're going to sing a great hymn that reminds us, not that we hold fast to him, but he's holding fast to us. You might say, I could separate myself from the love of Christ. Well, I think you're, you would be in that juncture, right? Merrill E. Gates wrote these words back in 1886, and they continue to prove to be a comfort to everyone who's sung them. I'm not going to put them on the screen, but thy love to me, O Christ, thy love to me, not mine to thee, I plead, not mine to thee. This is my comfort strong. This is my joyful song. Thy love to me, thy love to me. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Our great and gracious Father, we glory today in the love of Christ which is ours through adoption. And we come to you this morning aware of the vast bankruptcy of our spiritual condition before you. We this morning are unworthy, but as a God of infinite worth, you still receive us. This morning we're guilty, but as a God of infinite grace, you have justified us. You didn't spare your own son, but you accomplished the purposes of your will in crushing your dear son. Through Christ's resurrection and ascension, you've brought many sons to glory. So Jesus, our advocate, our defender, our intercessor, by right of resurrection, you have conquered sin and death and you've rendered that final foe powerless. And we thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. That though we deserve condemnation, we deserve a sentence of judgment pronounced against us, you instead call out prayers to plead the merits of your blood on our behalf. We thank you for that, Jesus. So Lord, may we rest today in your unfailing love. May we choose to fear not, fret not, faint not, because nothing in all of creation will ever separate us from your love. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the confidence that you provide us in approaching your throne of grace to receive mercy and help in our time of need. And so may we as a church, may we as believers rest secure in you. Not that we would hide out, but Lord, that we would be commissioned out to share this gospel from this place today for your glory, for our community's good, for the work of Christ, the renown of your name, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.